Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In the previous episodes, we looked at the technological developments in agriculture that, by the ten hundreds in the lowlands, had led to a surplus of labor and goods and subsequent move of many common people going out seeking big things into towns. This happened first in the south, in the territories of Flanders, Hanau, Namur, Luxembourg, Liège, and to an extent Brabant. In the north, however, particularly in the domains of the Counts of Holland and the Bishop of Utrecht, what still existed coming into the 1000s was a fairly uninhabited, swampy wilderness. In this episode, we are going to break away from the main chronology of the series for a little bit, to zoom out and then refocus on one particular topic. How exactly, in the space of roughly 500 years, this empty swampland was transformed into one of the most densely populated places on the planet. But in order to do that, we are going to have to focus on one of the most underrated and unappreciated of Mother Nature's gifts. And that is something called sphagnum. More commonly known as Pete Moss. And we don't mean Philadelphia-based DJ Pete Moss. We mean Pete, like P-E-A-T. Also, why wouldn't DJ Pete Moss have called himself DJ Sphagnum? That seems like a real missed opportunity by him. We, on the other hand, are going to take every single opportunity to say the word Sphagnum that we can. Sphagnum. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. This is Episode 8, Draining the Swamp, or the Secret Soggy Story of Sphagnum. A fair way back now, in the first episode of this series, we mentioned the glaciation which had riven great ravines into the continent's corner about a million years ago. In the many, many millennia since this time, what had built up across the lowlands was all this wonderful sphagnum. From northwestern Flanders, up through Zeeland, 
Holland, Friesland, and parts of Helders, great swaths of peat, which essentially is fossilized organic compound, simply abounded. For most of its history, the landscape of the lowlands was one of rolling hills of ancient, ever-accumulating, rotten vegetation, of a veritably sponge-like composition which covered the terrain. Some of it would have reached to around 4 meters above sea level. Moss, fungi, grass of different types, and in varying stages of decomposition, lay like a giant, green, turfy-smelling souffle on top of an indented landscape. We must be careful here, as if now ourselves wading into something dark and mysterious so that we do not get bogged down in what is actually a mire of Palestrine peculiarities. Importantly, there are two main groupings into which peat is categorized. Firstly, there are fens, which is peat that is exposed to mineralized and more alkaline groundwater, and therefore creates a lush, species-rich landscape that can thrive off of all of those minerals. The other, which in our area was much more abundant peat, is bog. It is fed only by rainwater, so is more acidic and less mineralized than fens, leading to less fertility. It's pretty damn difficult stuff to get around in. If you imagine a wet depression in the landscape, which is actually a fairly accurate description of wintertime in the Netherlands, first there would be a layer of groundwater at the bottom of it, upon which fens would grow. Once the fens had grown high enough, it would become separated from the groundwater, at which point our current favorite thing, sphagnum, takes over. It grows up and out, filling and overflowing the depression of the landscape. What results are these beautiful rolling carpets of bog? Before the turn of the millennium, the area roughly between modern-day Leiden, Utrecht, and Haarlem was dominated by the Alder Rhine, the Fecht, and the Sparna rivers. When these rivers still flowed naturally, they carried sediments with them down from the mountains, creating broad sand and clay levees on their banks. As the flow upstream became clogged, the water levels in these rivers dropped, exposing more clay, which was an attractive thing for people to go and settle on. Clay flats might not sound attractive as a place to go and build a life, but if you're living in a boggy swamp, options for parcels of land are not to be sneezed at. So, before the year 1000, the few people who lived in this area would have been in settlements close to the rivers, or along the high sandy dunes in the west near the coast. These dunes acted as large sand barriers, protecting the land from the dangerous waters of the North Sea. The rest of the bog was basically empty wilderness. In the far north, in Friesland, there were also significant salt marshes and mudflats. Across the rest of the lowlands, vast forests dominated. The shift of urbanization in the south that we went into in those previous episodes was driven by people looking for opportunities for wealth and freedom from their feudal overlords. In the north, people started going about colonizing the boggy swampland. The Counts of Holland and Helders and the Bishops of Utrecht wanted people living on their lands, so from about 1050 had begun luring people to the area with promises of opportunity and relative freedoms. 
If you moved to the area and did the back-breaking work required to make it habitable, you would be granted your freedom and ownership of the land. From then on, all you would have to do is pay a small fee as recognition of the Count as the overall Lord of the Territory. The people who did this would be allocated a block of land along a river or a creek and the right to reclaim the wilderness behind it out to a certain distance. But like we have explained, bog is pretty awful stuff to walk around in. So in order to use their new parcels of land, they had to somehow drain the swamp. Not politically, but literally. This is where everybody's favorite fundamental force, gravity, comes into it. When researching this episode, our colleague David had a light bulb moment when he said, in his typically Swedish way, guys, I have figured out why they say upstream and downstream. It's because the river goes from up to down. Whilst this comment might seem extremely obvious, it is actually an incredibly important thing to remember. Water in rivers is constantly being pulled by gravity down the incline of the land, no matter how gentle that incline may be, from up in the mountains to down in the sea. So in order to drain the water away from these wet and soaring stacks of sphagnum, these colonists would have waded over the spongy surface and cut large blocks of peat out of it, creating long parallel ditches which ran at 90 degrees down to the river. By puncturing the sponge, the water in the bog would then drain down these ditches towards the river and from there out to the sea. The landscape thus created was one of long skinny strips of land called uckers, all of the same length as defined by the administration with water at either side of them, each belonging to a different family. The farmers could then happily farm their now dry land, and the counts and bishops could make money by enacting tolls on the rivers which the farmers needed to use in order to bring their goods to market. And then there were the taxes levied for participation in the markets themselves. There was another way also that the counts and bishops benefited by enabling this common land ownership in their territories. All these extra farmers on the land provided more manpower for the armies needed for participation in the games of whose army is bigger that the ruling nobility were so caught up in. The inhabitation of these northern bogs of the lowlands was a remarkable occurrence of common land ownership within the generally feudal structures of European society where nearly all the land was owned by the ruling nobility. Most of the land that constitutes what would become the county of Holland, on the other hand, was free from feudal obligation. In Helders, only one-fifth was feudal, and in Flanders, just over a quarter. Friesland, kind of still just rocking along as an entity and culture unto itself, just continued being run by Frisians. But generally, now, in the northern lowlands, there already seemed to be a different mindset becoming established amongst the ruling nobility and the common people that offered a greater sense of individual independence than the peasantry in for example, France and Germany receives. As Bas van Barfel writes, quote, In contrast to the goals of the Frankish king in the early Middle Ages, which resulted in increasing unfreedom, the goals of the territorial lords now promoted the freedom of the colonizers. End quote. Or another way to look at it is that 
Nearly 200 years before common people in Britain would be able to extract some level of legislative recognition and freedom with the Magna Carta in 1215, the ruling nobility in our beloved swamp was already trading freedom for taxes. It can be argued that here were sowed the seeds from which modern free societies would grow and the eventual demise of European nobility originated. So this might all seem like it's going along splendidly. Unfortunately, however, this happy situation would not last long because a couple of sphagnum-related things were already happening. Through this increase of agriculture and the ditch digging that was required to create these strips of farmland, what had begun was a process of subsidence on the sphagnum surface soil of the north and west of the lowlands. The raised boggy peat had begun to shrink as it drained out and oxygen set about rotting its insides. Furthermore, dried peat is a pretty handy fuel, and so people already for ages had very often just farmed peat. They would continue to dig it up into lots, dry it out, and cut it off to market. People would buy it, and by burning it, would heat their hearths and homes. As this increasingly populated bogland began to sink, the ground level started moving closer to the surface water, and everything just gradually became wetter. Essentially, the giant mossy peat souffle that covered much of the lowlands began to transform into more of a terrestrial trifle. That's a pretty good analogy, right? Another major effect of living in this swampy river delta was becoming clear by the mid-1100s. The area that included essentially Holland and the southern Utrecht bishopric domains was a part of the Alder Rhine and the Fecht river systems. These rivers had historically been some of the major depositing points or the biggest mouths of the Rhine. They were now well on the wane, however. Natural sedimentary deposits had created these clay flats which had become attractive for farming. That meant that there were more drainage ditches that needed to be dug. Also, human-built dam structures upriver, that's back where the river is coming from, Dave, generally clogged the Alder Rhine and the Fecht system up and slowed the rivers down until they were eventually cut off from the Rhine altogether. As the river system became clogged upstream and the flow of water had decreased, the Outer Rhine eventually lost its ability to push through the sand dunes at the coast near the town of Kutvik. When the mouth of the river eventually closed up in around 1150, the river was cut off from the sea with nowhere left to go. So it started to seep out into the farmlands on its sides and now threatened all of the people who had just moved to these newly colonized lands. Faced then with a stream of oncoming water that was slowly filling their land, the farmers of Holland demanded that something be done. The Count of Holland, a guy at this stage called Floris III, decided that the best plan of attack was to stop the water from entering the area in the first place. So around the year 1165, he had a dam built right near the eastern border of his lands, a border adjacent with Utrecht at a place called Zvamerdam. This is a fine example of taking your problem and turning it into somebody else's. 
As you can imagine, it wasn't a good solution at all for people living on the Utrecht side of this dam, and it mightily annoyed the Bishop of Utrecht himself. Large areas of land became inundated, and the people who lived there couldn't simply be moved to other spots because by now there were no further areas available to be given out for farming. This dispute between the Count and the Bishop became so intense that the issue actually rocketed up the imperial chain of command and it took a visit by the Emperor himself, Frederick Barbarossa, before the matter became settled. He ordered that the dam be removed. This, however, did not remove the problem. Talking about problems which can't seem to be removed, here's an ad break. We'll be back soon. Like we said earlier, the landscape of the Netherlands around this time had been one of rolling bogs, but was gradually subsiding because of the man-made drainage it had undergone. We've mentioned this once before, but it is important to remember that there was a gigantic lake in the middle of the lowlands, known in Roman times as Lake Flavo, but more commonly as Almir. Al is a Dutch word for eel, so its name pretty much means Eel Lake. Delicious. Almir was surrounded by peatlands and had a small river running out of its northern side called the Flea, which was Almir's only connection to the sea. Throughout the centuries, the lake grew for various reasons. First of all, the water at its shores would have eroded the peat surrounding it. Additionally, the Frisians who had already begun constructing dikes around the coast by this stage, had also chopped out a lot of peat for use as fuel right near the flea, which further weakened the boggy land. This was also a period of time known as the medieval warm period, in which higher temperatures caused sea levels to rise. All of this came together in disastrous fashion on the dreadful night of November 1st, 1170. All Saints Day. A giant flood occurred. It is creatively known to history as the All Saints Flood of 1170. In it, the sea was able to smash through the dunes and break through the insufficient primitive dikes. Through the resulting devastation, that previously small river, the Flea, turned into a large channel which now linked the Almir to the sea. Also, another small creek, the Mars Deep, turned into another open channel. Tens of thousands of people died, and an entire forest, known as the Creel Woods, was totally destroyed during the inundations. Most devastatingly, massive areas of salt marshes and peatland were completely washed away. The result was that the once fresh Lake Flavo, or the Almir, was now extremely connected to the sea, and was well on its way to turning into a sea itself, what would become known as the Zouder Zee, the Southern Sea. Furthermore, the flood created two new large islands called Tessel and Vieringen in the northwest. They had now been totally cut off from the rest of the land. The surviving Frisians on Tessel were now separated from their brethren to the east, with nothing between them and the encroaching Hollanders to their south. 
It is difficult for us to imagine what it must have been like being a Frisian, still living in a homestead built on a dwelling mound, watching as the land around you was literally sucked away out to sea. This nightmare was to be repeated only 26 years later, in 1196, when the St. Nicholas Flood once again devastated the area, washing away even more peat and further expanding the Zauder Zee. Another flood in 1212 killed up to 60,000 people in North Holland. Again, on the 16th of January, 1219, a massive gale swept across the Atlantic and unimaginable quantities of seawater smashed once more into the lowlands, this time drowning around 36,000 people. In short, in a period of roughly 50 years, four absolutely gigantic floods had struck the northern parts of the Low Countries, killing over 100,000 people and transforming huge swaths of what had once been peat marsh and salt flats into two new inland seas, the Zauderzee and another, the Vardensee, out by these new islands. In the fight of man against nature, at this point, it was advantage nature. Whilst most people might look at this devastation and despair and think, stuff this, it's not worth the effort to stay here, and then start migrating away from all this soggy sphagnum, the obstinate people of the lowlands decided to stay put. In the writings of an abbot named Lubert II of Egmont in 1250, there is discussion about renting tenants' land under the proviso that they construct and maintain a dike where one had previously been destroyed. The people of West Friesland then began to connect their various smaller dikes together to make a larger coherent system, known as the Vestfries Omring Dike. This construction essentially turned West Friesland into an encircled, protected area between the North Sea and the Zuiderzee. When another gigantic deluge, the St. Lucia's Flood, occurred in 1287, up to 80,000 people were killed in Holland and Friesland proper, but the people of West Friesland were mostly spared, thanks to their fancy new dike ring mostly doing its job. These new vast inland seas may well have been forged in disaster and tragedy, but they also provided opportunity for solutions to those river flooding problems which the people further south had been facing since the mouth of the Alder Rhine silted up at Katwijk. The 1200s, therefore, saw the undertaking of major construction projects in Holland and Utrecht, so as to control their water levels. The works required regional cooperation, and out of this need, the first regional public bodies were created. They would come to be called Waterschappen, in English, water boards, although this term would not be used until the end of the 1300s, and technically, they would actually be called Hochheimraden, which translates as High Local Council. Unless you are Google Translate, in which case you would hilariously translate Heimraden into Marshmallow. Anyway, their purpose was to ensure the construction and maintenance of water management systems, dikes, dams, and ditches. The earliest known of these waterboards were De Lechdijk Bovendams, just south of the city of Utrecht, Grote Waard in the region of the Waal River, and Rhineland near Leiden. 
the ever-growing number of people in the lands south of the Zaudazay all had a vested interest in anything that would both stop water coming from it and also allow them to release water into it. The establishment of water boards is a significant marker in the socio-political makeup of what would become the Netherlands, as they included and also really served the interests of the common people, as opposed to just the feudal nobility. Essentially, the farmers of each village had been required to conduct their own drainage of bogland, as we went into earlier. However, being a collective requirement, it was a priority for villagers to have people amongst them who were specialists in water management. Eventually, you had what could be considered an early organization of experts. As the need for larger systems came about, following the huge floods from the 1160s onwards, groups of these specialists in different villages united to cooperate. For leaders of any general community, this coordination was of an absolute priority, and so water boards came into being out of public cooperation. The Rhineland Water Board, for instance, emerged out of the unification of 15 of these different groupings of specialists. There came to be what were called dike roles in the upkeep of the systems. There was a collective group, the dike chair, which consisted of a dike count as the top dude of the hydro hierarchy, but with varying levels of power and influence in different times and regions. Then there was also a college of judges who decided on judicial dike-related matters, like handing out fines for lack of dike maintenance, as well as an administrative body that established whose role was whose. Landowners were primarily responsible for dikes around their property, and the responsibility for commons was shared accordingly. If you were one of these land-owning farmers, the dike count would come and visit you three times a year, once in spring to see what repairs needed to be made, once in summer to make sure that you had done those repairs, but then to levy fines had you not, and once in the autumn to then see what repairs had to be made before winter. If the landowners could not afford repairs, the dike count would often loan them money at a ridiculous interest. Indeed, over the following centuries, many landowners would go bankrupt and their properties either divvied up by their neighbours or repossessed by the dyke count, whose families then in later generations, known by their last name, Dijkgraaf, would subsequently be large landowners. The Rhineland Water Board in the first half of the 1200s organised the digging of huge south-north flowing drainage canals called the Zeil and the Deuce. When completed, these stretched from the outer Rhine near Leiden to the lakes north of the river, and then hopped from lake to lake until eventually the water they carried was able to be emptied out into the Zuiderzee via the Sparna and the Ai rivers. This was actually the solution that had been mediated by the Emperor between the Count of Holland and the Bishop of Utrecht to ensure the removal of that damn dam on their borders. Although these new works were in Holland, the Bishop of Utrecht was therefore required to also cover part of the costs. Different technological innovations also emerged out of all of this industry. Something called the Klepdijk was invented, which was a dike or a dam with a kind of tunnel running through it and a door on the seaside that would only open outwards. 
River water from the inhabited areas would run through the tunnel and push the door out, allowing for the drainage of water into the sea when the sea was at low tide. If the sea, however, was at high tide, then the Klepdike door would slam shut and there would be no breach of the tunnel. At the points where these great drainage waterways fed out towards the Zaudazee, dams were built with Klepdikes, and the water levels started to be controlled. This was happening all over the northern lowlands, and in a series of different projects that were designed to just get rid of that dammed water. You only have to look at the list of Dutch cities and towns today that end in dam, which all find their origin at this time, to see it. Rotterdam, Spandam, Dorkedam, Zandam, Follendam, and Monikendam are a few examples of places that originated as commonly fishing villages where people built dams. Maybe we've forgotten one or two. Not far east of the river Sparna, another drainage ditch, also running south to north, had been dug, perhaps already just after the All Saints flood of 1170, by joining two little rivulets together. Before it had been created, the southern branch had actually flowed in the opposite direction from north to south due to the rolling boggy landscape, whereas the northern branch had flowed into the Almir, come Zaudazee. Once connected and the whole drainage system completed, the flow of the southern branch changed course to now flow north, ensuring that the surrounding farmlands remained as dry as possible. This big drainage ditch slash river was known as the Amstella, which is a Germanic conjunction of two words, arms, meaning water, and stella, meaning location, position, or place of. The place of water is not a very imaginative name for a river, but creative naming was not a priority for these people. Keeping life dry was. Remembering that this whole system involved draining land south of the Zaudazee in Holland and Utrecht, digging these big ditches and then damming them at the end and controlling water levels, the dam built at the end of the Amstella was constructed by those living in one of those fishing villages on the coast of the Zuiderzee. Like all those other places we mentioned, Amstelladam, or Amsterdam as it is today known, began for just such a reason. There was more than one kind of dam too. There are those that block and control water, and there are slouses, or shiplocks, which also allow ships to pass through, but which were less reliable against flooding and also more expensive to build. In addition to the dams releasing water that ran south-north into the Zaudazee, dikes along its coast, running east-west, also had to be built. Although each village would have organised its own initial defensive dike, a connected dike ring became clearly necessary. There is no point in just one village building a flood wall when the whole place around is sinking and water can just flow in on your flank and drown you anyway. What was created then was a dike, dam and slouse system that connected the fishing villages that dotted the Zaudazee coast. Similar, if we're honest, to what had been done in Friesland already a century before and was being done in Flanders as well. Here, the whole thing required the cooperation of different people in different villages and regions, and between the Counts of Holland and the Bishops of Utrecht. It was in everybody's interest that these systems were built and also maintained, and a vast majority of discussions about water management would have revolved around 
negotiating the needs and requirements of these different peoples and communities in the various villages. For instance, Harlem, located on the river Sparna, was rising quickly. Knights from Harlem had actually covered themselves in glory on a crusade in Egypt, so the Count of Holland gave the town a bunch of honours in the 1210s, and then it became one of the earliest settlements in that area to be given city rights, which it received already in 1245. It was also establishing itself as a prominent trade town in the region. A little bit north of Harlem, at the mouth of the Sparna, was Spandam, a fishing village whose main interests were to ensure the control of water running from the south and to stop water coming in from the north. The Count of Holland, around 1255, gave permission to Harlem for a shiplock to be built, but this outraged the Heemsrad, that's waterboard, not marshmallow, administration in Spandau, who objected loudly. The Count had to come in and renege on his promise to Harlem, instead telling them that no slouse could be built without their consulting the dam officials in Spandau. And so, once again, this general priority of everybody to just not drown forced the people who at this stage were living in different villages across a sizable region of our beloved boggy swamp to work with each other. It was about cooperation, consultation, and compromise. Early 20th century German philosopher Helmut Plessner put it beautifully when he said of this and how it would eventually mould the culture of the people who would establish themselves in this region that they, quote, through the reclamation of the low-lying peat bogs, the construction of dikes around the land, and the regulation of water, very early learned to act rationally as a group, end quote. Plessner was very correct in this assertion, except, as Fred Fettis has pointed out, it was not low-lying peat that they had reclaimed. As we know, it was in fact high-lying peat, but as we also know, that peat is indeed sinking. And these new fancy systems being created, as well as the revolutionary social and administrative institutional structures, would need to stay on top of all this water business forevermore, right to this very day. The processes of great migration, urbanization, and colonization also continued. People found other opportunities besides farming since the floods had diminished the land available. Many little fishing villages had sprung up along the coast of the Zauder Zee, with its relatively sheltered shores offering an ideal route for people moving from the south to the north, towards towns of northern Germany and even as far as the Baltic Sea. Furthermore, towns along the Isel, the river which was now the main connection between the Rhine and the Zauder Zee, became more and more important as trading hubs. In the previous episode, when talking about people in towns seeking autonomy from the nobility, we mentioned how groups of traders from different towns would form convoys, or Hansa, developing networks that provided each other representation and protection in travels between towns. One such network, growing out of North German towns in the 1100s, expanded out in Northern Europe, the Baltics, and Scandinavia, and by the 1300s had developed into a powerful mercantilist entity called the Hanseatic League. During the 14th and 15th centuries, those towns along the Isel, like Deventer, Zwolle, Sutphen, and Kampen, began to join this league. 
This region had become a hotspot for basic goods, wood, fish, peat, livestock, beer, and a type of herb called chrut, which is a substitute for hops in beer, upheld the well-being of the ever-increasing population. Other industries like shipbuilding and net making furthered the potential for innovation and commercial advance. These opportunities arose because of the creation of these great inland seas. Now, the previously sparsely populated river towns in this part of the lowlands were connected to the greatest trading network of the European Middle Ages, and this would have a great bearing on the history of the Netherlands still to come. While the flooding had been made possible because of the drainage of the swamp and the subsequent subsidence, innovation and opportunism showed themselves to be great strengths of the people who had made this place their own. The problems, however, would never disappear. Even with flood defense systems and this amazing early regional cooperation, the subsidence that had begun with the original drainage ditches dug in the 10 hundreds had resulted in the land continuing to sink. In conjunction with rising sea levels, by the 1300s, the level of the land had sunk to be below the level of the high tide. The bog sank back down to groundwater level and the swampy conditions returned, with nothing other than grassland being able to grow in this saturated environment from about the early 1400s. Bizarrely, sediments had also built up on the riverbanks and made the rivers now sit at a level higher than the land around them. This was not a safe situation, and it would take a new technological breakthrough, one which would move water in a way that it doesn't really like to go from down to up, Dave, to solve this problem. And to do this, you need something to pump the water. Which brings us to today's Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Indeed, the word pump comes from the Dutch word pomp, which means to pump. From the 1400s onwards, the lowlanders will be vigorously pomping themselves silly, continuing on with this age-old tradition of collectively not drowning. We hope you've enjoyed this rather long, meandering explanation of the beginnings of systematic water management in the low country. In the next episode, we're going to jump back to where we left off our general chronology around the latter half of the 1100s. From there, we will then set off on a path, exploring how the whims and agenda of various groups, the ruling nobility of the lowlands, the rising mercantile patricians in towns, the sovereigns of the major European powers, the church, and the lowlander common people, all intertwined in the continued composition of the history of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.